Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day. We will be uh, talking actually about, you know, remembering that time a little later on in the program. Got a lot to talk about today. First of all, I just discovered as I was doing research for the op-ed that I was going to write for today, yesterday afternoon, I discovered a new law that Ukraine passed that I had no idea about. And I'm, I'm guessing you didn't either. I want to I talk about that in just a moment. You know, can little Ukraine teach big America how to deal with our serious oligarch problem? Also, did anyone win the debt ceiling? We'll talk about the debt ceiling. It's the big news, of course, everybody's talking about. And our crazy alert, Ron DeSantis wants to shackle pregnant women during childbirth. Yes, seriously, you heard that right. We'll talk about that. And in fact, it's a Republican who's calling him out. What is fascism? The War Department, uh, what used to be called the War Department, we call it the Defense Department now, sent a memo to American soldiers in, fighting in Europe in 1943 and uh, Heather Cox Richardson uh, reprinted much of it over the weekend, and it's really amazing. Also on Geeky Science, can a simple houseplant save you from cancer? But I want to start out today with the uh, piece that I wrote over at HartmanReport.com titled, Can Little Ukraine Teach Big America How to Deal with Our Oligarch Problem? And, uh, you know, I start out by telling the story of Viktor Medvedchuk. Med- Medvedchuk. He was the Rupert Murdoch of Ukraine. He was a billionaire oligarch who owned a right-wing television network and a whole bunch of TV stations, uh, along with a bunch of other businesses in Ukraine. And his TV network was constantly spewing hate and, and division. And, and he, was, you know, he owned a bunch of politicians and, and was promoting tax cuts for the rich and all this kind of stuff, right? I mean, just just a, 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 an incredible parallel. And then came Vladimir Zelensky. Zelensky ran for president of Ukraine and won on an anti-oligarch, anti-corruption platform. And last year, it became, it became law in the first week of June of last year of 2022, Zelensky passed a law to strip oligarchs of their ability to influence elections in Ukraine. Yes, you heard that right. He did the same thing that, that, that Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt did. I mean, it's just, it was just incredible. They call it de-oligarchization. 
Seriously, this is not a word I made up. It's it's what they call their law, the de-oligarchization law of Ukraine. And basically what they're saying is, you know, we don't have a problem with you being rich in Ukraine and we don't have a problem with you having a political opinion. But if you use your riches to get what you want politically, that's wrong. That's now a crime. And you know, and, and what Zelensky said, in fact, when he declared, when he uh, rolled out this law, May 18th, 2021, he said, in order to su- succeed, Ukraine must become a rule of law democracy that works in the interest of the many rather than the few. He said, uh, in order to realize our potential, we must create a fair and functional system that protects the rights of the entire population rather than just safeguarding the interests of the oligarchs. Our ultimate objective, this is the president of Ukraine saying this a year and a half ago, two years ago saying our ultimate objective is to destroy the traditional oligarchic order and replace it with a fairer system that will allow Ukraine to flourish. Now, under this law that they passed in Ukraine that went into effect in June of last year, it was passed in 2021, any Ukrainian is by definition an oligarch if they meet three out of the four following criteria. Number one, they have a net worth greater than $89 million. Number two, they have significant, in quotes, influence over mass media. Number three, they control a business that exercises monopoly influence over part of the economy. And number four, they involve themselves in politics through funding politicians, political parties, political campaigns, or think tanks. In other words, do they, quote, take part in political life? If they do, if they meet three out of those four criteria, then number one, they're included on the official register of Ukrainian oligarchs published by the government. Number two, they may not run for political office. They may not fund political parties and they may not have any influence over any meaningful part of Ukrainian political life. Number three, they may not purchase any state assets that are privatized. They're still in the process of privatizing a lot of the old Soviet era stuff. Uh, number four, they must disclose their assets. And, and this is where I first learned about this was the Financial Times had a piece about this. And they, they called these exhaustive declarations. And number five, government officials are now required in Ukraine to report any meeting with any oligarch. Just lunch, you got to report it. Clarence Thomas, you want to have, you want to go on vacation, you got to report it. Now, we once had a similar tradition here in the United States. In fact, Americans want this right now. When Donald Trump was running for president, you will recall during the Republican primary in one of the debates, he came out and he's, he was talking about the oligarchs, uh, which is kind of ironic because he's one himself. But he said he was, he was speaking of uh, Jeb Bush and the other Republicans on the stage. And he said, they'll be bombarded by their lobbyists that donated a lot of money to them. Again, Jeb raised $107 million, okay? They're not putting that money up because it's a wonderful charity. Well, it's a charity, but for them, not for America. And, you know, and he goes on to his his rant about this and says he's going to deal with the oligarch problem. He's going to raise taxes so much that his friends are going to hate him. Well, of course, he didn't do that. He cut taxes on billionaires. But, you know, Donald Trump was always lying through his teeth. But the fact of the matter is that millions and millions of people voted for him because they thought he was going to de-oligarchize America. We had laws like this on the books. In 1907, we had the Tillman Act, which, which made it a federal crime for any wealthy executive of a large corporation to give any money or support to any candidate for federal office. But states had laws like this, too. The Wisconsin law, for example, this was actually on the books in Wisconsin until the Supreme Court overturned it. I'll just, I'll just read it to you. There's two sentences. 
No corporation doing the business in this state shall pay or contribute or offer consent or agree to pay or contribute directly or indirectly any money, property, free service of its officers or employees or thing of value to any political party, organization, committee, or individual for any political purpose whatsoever or for the purpose of influencing legislation of any kind or to promote or defeat the candidacy of any person for nomination, appointment, or election to any political office. Now, what were the penalties for this? Any, quote, any officer, employee, agent, or attorney, or other representative of any corporation who shall violate this act shall be punished upon conviction by imprisonment in the state prison for a period of not less than one nor more than five years. And if a domestic corporation, it may be dissolved. And if a foreign or non-resident corporation, its right to do business in this state may be declared forfeit. This is the kind of law we need to bring back. This is the kind of law we had in America for 100 years until five corrupt Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court blew it up. And by the way, the deciding vote in Citizens United was Clarence Thomas. And this was after he had developed his relationship with, with, with uh, Harlan Crow, an American oligarch. After, after that law was struck down and all the others by Citizens United and, the, and its predecessors, um, the following states had to strike down laws that were very similar to the one that I just read you from Wisconsin. They included Alaska, Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Kentucky, Minnesota, Montana, North Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, West Virginia, and as I read to you, Wisconsin. So, you know, we need to be doing the same thing. We need to bring this back. We need to end the oligarch control of American politics and American media. And it can be done. Now, the biggest challenge, of course, is going to be blowing up the Supreme Court's, you know, the, this corrupt Citizens United decision where Clarence Thomas was the deciding vote done by five corrupt Republicans. Now, Congress has the ability to do that unambiguously. Article 3, Section 2 gives Congress the right to regulate the Supreme Court and to create exceptions to what the Supreme Court may rule on. It's, it's not even something that's up for debate. The question is... Do we have enough votes to get it through Congress? We had a piece of legislation that would have done much of this, that would have reversed much of Citizens United, and that would have stripped a lot of political, big political money out of politics. It was called the For the People Act, H.R. 1. And it passed the House of Representatives, and when it got to the Senate, it had 50 votes in the Senate, plus the, the, the uh, vice president, and it would have become law if the Republicans had not filibustered it. But then the Republicans filibustered it, and then... You know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema refused to go along with all the other Democrats in blowing up that filibuster. So here we are. What do we do? Well, the only thing we can do. We have an election coming up in a year and a half, and we need to get everybody we know registered to vote. Get them registered to vote, get them active, get them aware, wake them the hell up. And from here, you know, with this, we might be able to take our country back from the oligarchs. We, have, we, are, we are more of an oligarchy than we have ever been in our history. Three men in America own more wealth than the bottom half of Americans. I mean, let that sink in. And they're using that money to make sure that they never again have to pay more than 3.1% in income taxes. That's the effective income tax rate right now for American oligarchs. We got to do something. The debt ceiling, did anyone win? Let's talk about that right after this.
Welcome back. Okay, so uh, we've got this uh, debt ceiling deal, and I find this absolutely fascinating. It sure looks to me like, well, first of all, let me preface all of this by saying, as you well know, I was an advocate of uh, Joe Biden just saying, screw you guys. You know, we're not going to do the debt ceiling deal. There's a bunch of other options. One is he could have issued a type of bond where it pays down the principal as well as the interest. That type of bond is not covered by the 1917 Liberty Bond Act. He could have simply issued new bonds, number one. Uh, you could argue that it would have taken congressional authorization. I would argue it's, they'd already been authorized by the spending itself. Uh, number two, he could declare the 14th Amendment. Number three, he could use the take, clause, take care clause in Article 2. I mean, there was a bunch of things he could have done. But, but he chose not to do that. He wanted to do it the, the quote, right way, the, the, the way that it's been forced to be done ever since Newt Gingrich first used this as a club to beat up Democrats in 1996, I believe it was. Maybe it was 95 during the Clinton administration. So, so we got this deal, and it looks like a pretty reasonable compromise. Now, compromise means not everybody gets what they want, and there are some parts of this deal that I'm very offended by. Uh, Joe Manchin and uh, Republicans in West Virginia are getting a gas pipeline that's going through a thousand different wetlands and rivers, uh, through or under, and it's going to cut money for domestic law enforcement. It's going to it's going to defund the police. It is going to cut forest management. It's going to cut scientific research. It's going to cut a whole bunch of things. It's also going to make it harder for people between the ages of 50 and 54 to get food stamps when they're down on their luck. And those, you know, because you've got to, quote, get a job. Well, tell that to people in parts of the country where there simply are no jobs. Tell that to people in Appalachia. Tell that to people in, you know, rural Mississippi. So, you know, it's going to hurt a lot of people. But on the other hand, it actually expands the food stamp program. It says that you can't be denied food stamps if you're homeless or if you're a disabled vet or if you're mentally ill. And, and you know, those are things that weren't covered before. And so this has got, you know, the, the, the Republicans have really got their panties in a wad. I mean, they are very, uh, the right-wing Republicans, they are very upset about this. They're talking today about, about uh, using that uh, one single vote. Can we call Kevin McCarthy? They're going to try and do that. They're going to vote against it. They're huffing and puffing. Uh, you know, they're, they're just hysterical. They did get, by the way, they got $20 billion cut out of the $80 billion for the IRS. So it's going to make it harder for the IRS to crack down on tax cheats. However, $80 billion is a big pile of money. And if we can, if we can retake the House and the Senate and hold on to the White House in 2024, retake, retake the House and, and hold the Senate and hold the White House, then, you know, we can fix this. So, you know, really this is a bet on the 2024 election and how that's going to turn out. It also doesn't raise the debt ceiling, it suspends it, which means that in 2025, right after the election, we're going to be right back where we are right now, only it's going to, we're going to have to raise the debt ceiling trillions of dollars more, which means we need a permanent fix to this. But, you know, we'll see where this goes. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, too. Stay tuned. And finally, Ron DeSantis wants women who are pregnant and giving birth to be shackled by handcuffs to their beds. Seriously, I'll tell you about that after the break. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, 
the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, appreciate you taking your call. Tom, you know, I was recently in Australia, Sydney, Australia, and I got to be honest with you, I was very surprised, you know, that Morak is not very well respected. He's not very well liked down there. And it's just, it was, I just found that a little bit surprising. But um, what I want to talk to you about, Tom, I mean, if there, were anyone, if there was anyone who I wanted to negotiate that ceiling is Biden. I think... Um, uh, he, he, he came out of victorious. He knew what to do. He knew how to hold down the line. And the Republican just blanked. But um, my question to you, you know, I'm just a little bit puzzled why the business people like Wall Street allowed the Republican to destroy the economy. I thought they pretty much had a good grip on the Republican. And why would they allow them to destroy the economy, you know, these business people? What you're, what you're seeing here, Omar, and what we're all seeing, in fact, is the war between the openly fascist Republicans, the, the, the Trump faction, and the, the, the business faction, the, the Mitt Romney Republicans, I think we could refer to them as, um, you know, who, who aren't really fascist and do sort of believe in democracy. They just, you know, would really like it if poor people couldn't vote, and, you know, things like that. And, and uh, I, I don't think that Wall Street ever for a minute thought that we were going to default on our debts. If they had, you would have seen a three, four, five hundred point drop in the Dow every single day, uh, you know, until it was down below 30,000. And instead, the Dow is over 33,000 right now. So, I, you know, I think that they took uh, when McCarthy and, and Biden both came out and said there will not be a default. And then Mitch McConnell came in and said there will not be a default. I think basically the business community took that at face value, and and I think they could. You know, I I think it was true. There, you know, there's going to be some concessions. We're we're giving up some things. Um, we shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have had to give up anything. Um, we're not getting anything for this other than the debt ceiling being uh, suspended until 2025. And like I said earlier, I don't think that's a big get because I don't think it's legitimate. But you know, I get it that nobody wants to fight it through the courts, and you really can't trust the Supreme Court anymore to even do the right thing. So, sure. so, sure. so, so, where that crystallized the importance of the election, um, the Senate and House getting that would be very important. Thank yes. you so much for taking my call. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Omar. Good talking to you, Bart in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Bart, what's up? Hey, Tom. 
first time caller. I've been listening to you since the days of uh, Air America. Escapes me. Air yeah. America. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Bart. So what's up? I'm calling in today. I've, I've been trying to find a time to call when there hasn't been gun violence, but unfortunately, this holiday weekend we had some here in New Mexico. I don't know oh, if I've made the news. Yeah. Up in Red River, there was a, a gang shooting, two dead. And oh yeah, at the, at the uh, motorcycle festival, and then the the, the shooting right. on the beach down in Hollywood, Florida. I mean, it's just a, yeah. it, it, yeah. every single day there's another mass shooting. It's yeah. this is this is what happens when Russia funds it. the NRA and the NRA funds Republican politicians. Yeah, so I've got a way to get around the Second Amendment, and that is something the EPA can do. The EPA could ban all uses of lead in the United States, just like they've banned all uses of uranium in the United States. Huh. That doesn't stop the military from having access to uranium to use for military purposes. Right. And the same would apply to lead. But if you banned lead, that would make ammunition much more expensive. Many guns probably couldn't use any other ammunition than lead ammunition. That's an interesting concept. So really yeah, the way you do it, you, you don't actually ban it. You you require people to get a toxic waste license, essentially. And there's a fee right, associated right. with that license, and, and that raises the cost of the ammunition. That's fascinating, Bart. Right. And there, and there's uh, I'm a former industrial hygienist, and there was a lot of uh, lead poisoning from police officers doing their training as you know, police cadets. Yeah. They were actually getting lead poisoning from that. And part of it is that in the primer, there's actually lead compounds that are vaporized as well mm -hmm. into the air. And that yeah. that's another thing is they'd have to change the chemical composition of the uh, bullets. Yeah. For oh, after, after, you know, I, I, I used to go uh, target shooting with my, with my brothers uh, back in Michigan. And uh, I, I would always end up with black hands. I mean, you know, with all this black... Uh, yeah. kind of sooty stuff on my hands. And I, I just assumed right. it was uh, black powder, you know, uh, spray. Um, mm -hmm. But one time I brought home a, uh, a bunch of the targets that I had shot and tested one with a lead mm -hmm. kit uh, that we had for lead paint in the house. Yeah. And uh, there's lead in that. I mean, you're exposed to lead poison, right. to, to vaporized lead when you're, when, you're, when you're shooting. Right. You know what lead poisoning that's, does to IQs. That's thing I mean, that EPA that's and maybe even OSHA step in on. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. That's a great idea, Bart. I, I had never thought of that. I keep thinking. That's that's yeah. your creative yeah. guy. Appreciate the call, Bart. Thank you. Thank thank you very right. much. Good talking to you. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment here in the Tom Hartman program, the place where despair is not an option. Stay tuned. Marty in Evergreen Park, Illinois. Hey, Marty, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to share a story from over the weekend. So my friend Mona runs a charity called Share Your Souls, where she collects shoes from people and donates them all over the world. Anyway, she has a building that's, that's near this police station, and she called me up Sunday morning because it just so happened that a busload of migrants from Venezuela that um, Greg Abbott just happened to send to Chicago. We're living at this uh, at this police station, right? Mm. So, so she asked me to um, if I wanted to come with her and ask these people, you know, if they needed shoes, if they would come, be willing to work with us, you know, around the building and, you know, exchange for some shoes. So I went over there, and she asked me because you know I speak a little Spanish, and and I was able to communicate with these people, and um, and they were more than happy to help us. Wonderful, wonderful human beings. 
and and put in about two hours of work, some of the most hardest working, most genuine people I have ever met in my entire life. Yeah. Um, That's but the all were very ethos, you know. Oh my goodness. So anyway, um, yeah, so they put in um, more, more work than, than we could have ever possibly imagined, and the building, the, the building looked more beautiful than, um, than we ever imagined it would look after a day's worth of work. But anyway, I was asking these people, what, you know, well, what do you guys really need? And everybody kept telling me, colchones, we need mattresses, mattresses, right? So because they're practically sleeping on the floor at this police station. So I started an air mattress drive. I gathered, you know, at least like seven or eight of them, plus some sleeping bags and stuff. And I'm just handing them out to these people as I go, you know, as I can get them, because, you know, it's just kind of like my mission statement, right? You know, Mm -hmm. but, um, but my point is, is like, like anybody that has any preconceived notions about these migrants that are coming from this failed state in Venezuela coming here, you know, we, we need these people in our country. Chicago is a better place because Greg Abbott sent these people here as a political joke with no maps of the city. These are very smart, resourceful people. They just need, you know, um, to know where they are and, right. and understand. At the very beginning, know, they're strangers I mean, like, in a strange like, land. But, they, they need yeah. a place to sleep. Yep. So my, and they sh- nobody should have to go through parlor tricks, you know, just to get a comfortable, like, mattress. At least that's what I believe. So I'm gathering on mattresses, and I'm just handing them out to these people, and as, as many as I can get. Is, um, yep. is is what I'm is kind that's, of like that's wonderful, what, Marty. What Good I'm on just, you. I have I'm a question. Um, is Chicago sure. has a large Hispanic community. Uh, are they are they pitching in? Is there uh, you know is there an effort to do outreach to, from the Hispanic community to the people to to new immigrants? I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there are, but Tom, there are many, 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 many of these like kind of like makeshift, like kind of like sprawling, like kind of. I'm just working with one particular group. Like mm-hmm. there's. You, you know, I mean, if everybody in the community can find like where these people are and communicate with them and ask them what their needs are, and we can all band together as a community to like welcome these people and understand what their skills are, and um, and there's a lot of things that federally needs to be done, and a lot of that can be found on the uh, there's a welcoming um, on the Chicago.org page. There's like right. a whole section on the welcoming Texas immigrants, and and there's a lot of laws that need to be passed, like like expediting like like uh, employment authorization and, and, and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, it's very difficult for these people to, um, to, to to navigate the city, you know, if you're just bust here. I totally get know, it. I totally with, get it. And this is just an echo of what the, the white citizens councils were doing down in the South in the 1950s and 60s when they were, they were uh, luring black people with promises of jobs and money and food um, to get on buses to go up north and then dumping them. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. Marty, thank you for the call. We'll be back. And welcome back. Picking up your calls here, Barbara in Chicago Heights. Hey, Barbara, what's up? Good morning, Tom. How are you? I'm well. I hope you are, too. I am. Thank you. I have one. I always agree with you, Tom, most of the time. But? Just today, I disagree with you that the only thing we can do about your uh, Ukraine Zelensky idea is to wait to 2024. Okay. What can we do between now and then? We have... Okay, what I'm looking at right now is we have 17 states where we have a Democratic trifecta and two other states where there are Democratic legislature. You have access to um, Mark Pocan, uh, Rokana, Bernie Sanders, 
And everything, the Supreme Court is telling us that things need to be done at the state level. So we need to take your plan to the state level as opposed to just waiting. I think 2024 is another way. But to wait to then, I don't think we have to wait. Yeah, good point. Those those uh, anti-oligarch laws like Wisconsin used to have could be put on the books in the states. The problem is they would be immediately overturned by the Supreme Court because of Citizens United. That's why I'm saying we need federal legislation. But then, but as, as with everything else with the Supreme Court, we, we have to fight it. We have to start the process. Minnesota yep. has put certain things. They've already, Minnesota is a classic case where we should at least try. Yep, I, don't I agree. I say we should wait. I agree. And let, let the Supreme Court tell us no instead of us saying no before we even negotiate with the Excellent Supreme point, Court. Barbara. Excellent point. I, I completely agree with you. So we need to start getting in touch with our legislature. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. That's 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 brilliant. And you're absolutely right. Thank you. I'm, I'm calling mine today. Okay. Thank you, Barbara. Good talking to you. Corky in Rochester, New York. Hey, Corky, what's on your mind today? Oh, I love to be ahead of the Democrat Party right now. It's a perfect win for them. They're sending us uh, pickers for our apples and our fruits. We're getting them from uh, Ron DeSantis and that crazy governor in uh, Texas. So our fruits and vegetables are going to be picked, you know, and we ain't going to have a problem with rotting in the field. And I want to propose a fold your arms bill with the dead ceiling. You sit in there and fold your arms and show every Democrat voting for a debt ceiling increase. And just fold your arms and sit there and let all those Republicans go against it. Because anybody who spent money and don't want to pay back is called a scumbag. Well, they're called a deadbeat, they- actually. That's, that's the official term. But yeah, I get it. Well, I get what you're saying, Corey. You know what I'm talking about. You're just, yeah. I'm talking to the average American. Yeah. We yeah. have to pay our debts. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to pay for what we spent last year. Yep. Yeah. Now, if we- Donald Trump, his tax uh, decrease or bonus to these wealthy guys, uh, we got to pay for that. Yep. You know, no, the bill. I, I completely agree, uh, Corky, and I think I think your point is uh, well taken. Uh, I, 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 let let the Republicans melt down. Thank you very much, Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's on your mind today? Hey, not too much, Tom. I want to try to make this point. Basically, it's the one I always try to make, but you know, I'm not having much luck. And the the overall point is that the Republican Party and all the power brokers therein, and Vladimir Putin's Kremlin and all his power brokers, they're working in tandem. And that's the part nobody wants to believe. But let me give you an example. You mentioned this anti-oligarch law in Ukraine, which I applaud and I hope it works out. Well, there's even, but, there's even when that law was passed, there were people speculating that it would cause Russia to invade Ukraine. And sure enough, they did seven months later. Well, and here's, here's another thing. I don't know if you noticed this, but in Uganda, they passed the law about right. aggravated homosexuality. Right. And death penalty for death gays, penalty. yeah. Yeah. Now, the reason why this is important, you know, people obviously say, well, Dave must be part of the, the community. I am not, okay? But the reason why it's important to every American, regardless of if you're in that community or not, is because if we lose Uganda as an ally in Africa, it's already tenuous because South Africa is 
possibly giving arms to Russia right That's now. Right. Yeah, it appears it's that they definitely Uganda. are. Uganda. Yeah. And Uganda played a big role in legitimizing our occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. A lot of people don't know that, but they did. All right, my point is this. We are losing the battle of ideas. And I'm going to be critical of Joe Biden, even though I don't want to be, because I think he's a great hero. But the bottom line is Erdogan just cemented his dictatorship in Turkey. Yeah. Uh, apparently, the Biden administration... In order to get Turkey to agree with Sweden entering NATO, Biden tried to bribe um, Turkey with F-16s. Now, all this, what this all works out to is Putin's advantage. What he does is he equates. He says there is no democracy. It is just a sham. You know, the natural way is autocracy. Right. And, and people, the, the, a Russian oligarch is a ruble. An yeah. American oligarch is a dollar. Yeah, no, I got, I got to run, Dave, but good point. Thank you. We'll be back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So we throw around the word fascism a lot, and, and I'm not sure most Americans have any kind of a genuine understanding of what that word actually means. And I can tell you for a fact that the War Department in 1943, our defense, what we call the Defense Department now, fully understood what fascism was because they were fighting Hitler in Europe. They were fighting, uh, fighting Mussolini in Europe. They were fighting Franco in Europe. They were fighting fascists in Europe. And in, in the Pacific, they were fighting fascist Japanese. And those movements in, in, in Japan, it had to do with emperor worship and, and racism. In Europe, it had to do with Fuhrer worship and racism. But they had a whole lot of stuff in common. So, on, uh, I said in 1943, they started these pamphlets in 43, but the one, the one that Heather, Heather Cox, Cox Richardson pointed out in her brilliant Substack newsletter, it's heathercoxrichardson.substack.com, uh, yesterday, or, or I guess it was this morning, it was, it's dated yesterday, May 29th, uh, was published on March 24th, 1945. So this was the height of World War II. And I'm just going to read to you from this brochure. This was, again, this was published by the American War Department, the U.S. Department of Defense, what we call today. You're away from home, separated from your families, no longer at a civilian job or at a school, and many of you are risking your very lives. Keep in mind, this went out to the soldiers. Because of a thing called fascism. But what is fascism? 
Fascism is not the easiest thing to analyze or identify, nor, once in power, is it easy to destroy. It's important for our future and that of the world that as many of us as possible understand the causes and practices of fascism in order to combat it. Fascism is government by the few and for the few. The objective is seizure and control of the economic, political, social, and cultural life of the state. I thought that, end of quote from the federal government. Cultural life, fascism? Yes. Let me continue. This, again, this is, I'm reading from a War Department memo, March 24th, 1945. The basic principles of democracy stand in the way of their desires. Hence, democracy must go. Anyone who is not a member of their inner gang has, has to do what he's told. They permit no civil liberties, no equality before the law. Children, kitchen, and the church was the Nazi slogan for women. Heather Cox Richardson adds, they permit no civil liberties, no equality. Oh, no, this is, this is actually from it. They, yeah, they, 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 fascism treats women as mere breeders. Ch- children, kitchen, and the church was the Nazi slogan for women. Fascists make their own rules. Again, I'm reading from the War Department. Fascists make their own rules and change them when they choose. They maintain themselves in power by use of force combined with propaganda based on primitive ideas of blood and race, by skillful manipulation of fear and hate, and by false promise of security. The propaganda glorifies war and insists it is smart and realistic to be pitiless and violent. Fascists understand that the fundamental principle of democracy, faith in the common sense of the common people, was the direct opposite of the fascist principle of rule by the elite few. So they fought democracy. They played political, religious, social, and economic groups against each other and seized power while these groups struggled. They go on to to point out that we should not be fooled into thinking that we're safe from fascism here in the United States. Again, from the War Department brochure. We once laughed Hitler off as a harmless little clown with a funny mustache. And indeed, the U.S. has experienced sorry instances of mob sadism, lynchings, vigilantism, terror, and suppression of civil liberties. We have our hooded gangs, black legions, silver shirts, and racial and religious bigots. All of them, in the name of Americanism, have used undemocratic methods and doctrines which can be properly identified as fascist writes the U.S. War Department in 1945. They will try to gain power under the guise of super-patriotism and super-Americanism. Interesting. They would, the fascists would seize power in America by claiming that they wanted to make America great again. It goes on to say that uh, first they, they would pit groups against each other. Uh, It's part of a, quote, well-planned hate campaign against minority races, religions, and other groups. Second, they'd say, we don't need to involve ourselves with the rest of the world. Um, Quote, in place of international cooperation, the fascists seek to subvert, to substitute a perverted sort of ultranationalism, which tells their people that they are the only people in the world who count. With this goes hatred and suspicion toward the people of all other nations. And then third, fascists insist, quote, the world has but two choices, either fascism or communism, and they label as communists everyone who refuses to support them. 
Again, this was written by the War Department in 1945, and it's like they're describing today's Republican Party. It is vitally important to learn how to spot fascists, the government wrote, quote, even though they adopt names and slogans with popular appeal, they drape themselves with the American flag. They attempt to carry out their program in the name of democracy, of the democracy that they are trying to destroy. So how do we fight fascism in the United States? Well, the War Department says the only way is by making our democracy work and by actively cooperating to preserve world peace and security. We must, they say, uh, defy to fascism. They say that by dividing people, it weakens democracy. By getting men to hate rather than think, it prevents them from seeking the real cause and the democratic solution to the problem. Amazing. Our government needs to be talking about fascism again. I mean, not just going after the fascists like the, the Department of Justice is doing, going after the January 6th people. Uh, I mean, this is just the smallest tip of the iceberg. And we need to be going after the leadership as well. Meanwhile, in Texas, speaking of fascists, in Texas, uh, Harris County Judge Lena Hidalgo, who's been a guest on this program multiple times, she's the most senior elected official in that county, kind of the equivalent of a county commissioner or county executive. Um, she is protesting uh, two pieces of legislation that uh, passed over the weekend in Texas at the end of the Texas legislative session. They, their legislature just re, you know, retired for the next two years without passing a single gun control piece of legislation. But instead what they did is they passed two laws that only apply to counties in Texas with over 3.5 million people. There is only one county in Texas with over 3.5 million people. It's Harris County, which is where Houston is, and it's the largest Democratic county in the state. And these two pieces of legislation give the Secretary of State, a, a Republican, the authority to take control of the elections away from the county officials and run the elections the way that the Secretary, the, that the Secretary of State sees fit and even throw out the results of elections that they don't like, claiming, oh, well, you know, one of the uh, polling places opened 10 minutes too late. The, the, the little kind of technical violations that can happen in Harris County that just routinely happen, you know, running out of paper, running out of ballots, opening, opening too late, not having a power cord so half your machines, you know, so some of your machines aren't working for the first half hour. That, those kinds of problems, which just normally happen all over the country in polling places, those would trigger the ability of the Republican fascist Abbott regime to take over the elections via Senate Bill 1933 and Senate Bill 1750 to take over the elections in Texas. As uh, Harris County Judge Linda Hidalgo says, the reasoning behind these bills is nothing but a cynical charade. Amen. Speaking of fascists. I've got an incredible geeky science for you. Uh, can a house plant help you prevent cancer? Turns out the answer is yes. Might take more than just one house plan, but it's an interesting story. I'll share with you, that with you on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. I'll be picking up your calls also. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the place where smart people get their news. We'll be right back.
Yep, Ron DeSantis wants women who are giving birth to wear handcuffs, shackling them to their beds if they're in federal prisons. Uh, weirdly enough, the first step act, this criminal justice reform that outlawed that practice was signed by Trump into law. So now Ron DeSantis comes and says that if he's elected president, he's going to repeal this bill. Congressman Doug Collins or former Congressman Doug Collins, he, he is a he was a Republican from Georgia. He's, you know, uh, one of the more well-known Trump humpers down in Georgia. He has come out and said that uh, DeSantis, he says, DeSantis doesn't even seem to know uh, what's in the bill because he voted for it while he was in Congress. And even it, it even had a precision it actually had where we were shackling women while they were giving birth in federal prison. I guess Ron DeSantis still thinks they need to be handcuffed while they're giving birth. Right. So what's on your mind? The vote on the debt ceiling, by the way, is probably going to happen tomorrow. I, I, and I'm really not expecting this effort to remove McCarthy to go anywhere, but it's going to be interesting theater. It's sort of, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's like watching a, uh, an old uh, a Three Stooges movie, you know? <laughs> it's like watching the Republicans of the House of Representatives. Julio in Palmdale, California. Hey, Julio, what's on your mind today? Good morning, sir. How are you, Mr. Hartman? I am alive and kicking. <laughs> I'm fine. What's up? I know, man. I've been, listening, I've been listening to the show. I think you had three cups of coffee. <laughs> yeah. Good job, man. Thank you. One of the what's on my mind is, you know, America has is a um, an immigrant nation. Prior to that, well, logically indigenous, right? This whole side of the continent. But the Constitution it says it starts with we the people. I don't know if that's still believed today by the people that are voted into those positions. Well, the Republicans certainly would say it should say we the oligarchs, uh, and, and there's a few Democrats who are owned by the oligarchs too. You know, Mansion Cinema, Gottheimer. There's a few of them. <laughs> I know, Mr. Hartman. I know. Um, it kind of hurts me, man. You know, I came. I immigrated. My father got here when I was nine. There was mm-hmm. a um, dictatorship in Uruguay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, America gave us an opportunity. My dad always told me this is the country that. So providing for us and helping us, you you know, we're from here now. Yeah. But it's not about that. Yeah, we became citizens, thank God, with a lot of work and so forth. And it costs a lot of money to go through that, but let's not talk about that. It's the fact that America gives people chances. And it is a wonderful country. Now, when it starts to become like to hate within itself, well, it sucks. Republican, Democrat, or whatever, right? It sucks. It really sucks because... Yeah. This country has a lot more love to offer than any political party could imagine. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think the hate is being amplified right now for political purposes. But I, I think if you dig just a, yeah, man, just I below mean, the surface, you find most Americans are actually good, decent people. Of course, sir. Not only Americans. Uh, well, most America, humans. like most humans, sir. America is America, but it starts from... Alaska all the way down, you know, the new world. Let's not get into that. The United States of America. It, it's, it, uh, to, when we came here, it has a, the reputation of like, hey, man, we're going to be okay. Let's just make it right. Mm-hmm. God bless this country, you know. I said the Pledge of Allegiance and I felt it till I cried, you know. Yeah. And my, my thing is like, you got all these guys out there, politicians. I'll, I'll say politicians. We've had good politicians here. We've had bad politicians, but it starts with we the people. 
you know, the people. And the people get, get brainwashed by these boneheads, pardon the language, and then they start making their own laws, mm-hmm. and the people wind up being screwed, the ones that are dumb enough to follow their, their, their stupidity. If You know what I'm saying? I do. I absolutely and, do. Um, it's what's the matter with Kansas all over again, you know? I mean, here we are. There's a lot of hardworking people out here of all races. Um, and it's not about, I'm not calling for race. You know, I'm calling for the look to love the country, to love the United States. Yeah. And then you got the, I call them the wolves, you know. They go up there and they spit back and forth. It sucks, you know. More people, only 26% of Americans voted this last time for yeah. presidency. Yeah. 26%, dude. Well, was that 26% of adults who are eligible to vote? I think that that number is higher. I, I think that 26% number includes kids. Um, I think that what we saw was something <laughs> something in the 30s, uh, you know, when you talk about eligible Americans, maybe even the low 40s. But, yeah, I agree with you. We, You know, uh, Americans need to be more active, more involved in, in politics, um, sadly. You know, but a lot of people are just, just trying to get by, just trying to pay the bills. Well, Leo, thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. Appreciate the call. For the Tom Hartman University Book Club today, we're reading Locked Down, Locked Out, Why Prison Doesn't Work and How We Can Do Better by Maya Shenoir, who is, or was, I believe she still is, the publisher or the editor, rather, over truthout.org. This is from the introduction, the very beginning of the book. She uses a word I can't say on the air. I'll replace it with the word damn. Damn, 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 damn. I'm crying with my mother over the phone. It's late evening, December 25th, 2012, and Kayla... My only sister and best friend has been arrested for the seventh time in the past six years. She's in jail again, and this time we're sort of hoping she'll stay there. If she asks, I tell mom, I'm not bailing her out. Well, you know, we're not, mom says, her voice low and far away, a weary echo of words uttered in months and years past. If she's in there, at least she'll be safe. Jail, we agree, may be the only place that can save Kayla's life, staving off her burning dependency on heroin. Neither of us acknowledges that regardless of whether Kayla stays clean while incarcerated, sooner or later she'll be getting out. Do we know what she's in for, I asked Mom. Does it matter? I think of Kayla cuffed and listless, being dragged through the doors of the Cook County Jail, catching the eyes of women she's known before in court, on the street, in juvenile detention, in jail, in prison. I wonder whether a part of her is relieved to be back. Later, when I pick up the phone and hear a robotic voice announce, you have a collect call from the Cook County Jail, press 5 to take the call, I press the hang-up button and get into bed. My attitude toward Kayla's incarceration was born out of desperation. She'd overdosed three times within two months, passing out on the street, awakening in abandoned buildings or crowded hospitals, her pulse barely ticking. Yet my wish chafed against not only my love for her, but also my politics, my ideals, my sense of justice and truth. After all, I run a social justice-based news organization and have denounced the colossus that is the prison industrial complex for as long as I can remember. For nearly a decade, I've corresponded with a number of people in prison as both interviewees and pen pals, and I've learned much from them about the violence and hopelessness of our system. My understandings of the power structures that create prisons have been guided by the work of people like activist and scholar Angela Davis, a staunch prison abolitionist. How could I reconcile my wholehearted opposition to the prison industrial complex with a desire to see my own sister locked up? When I look back on that time, I can only comprehend it by acknowledging the insidious, persistent role that prison occupied in my mind. 
It was closely connected to the role it occupies in larger society. Incarceration serves as the default answer to many of the worst social problems plaguing this country. Not because it solves them, but because it buries them. By isolating and disappearing millions of Americans, more than 2.3 million right now, making us the most incarcerated country on the planet, prison conveniently disappears deeply rooted issues that society, or rather those with power in society, would rather not attend to. Prison, writes Angela Davis, performs a feat of magic. As massive numbers of homeless, hungry, unemployed, drug-addicted, illiterate, and mentally ill people vanish behind its walls, the social problems of extreme poverty, homelessness, hunger, unemployment, drug addiction, illiteracy, and mental illness become more ignorable, too. But, as Davis notes, prisons do not disappear problems, they disappear human beings. And the caging and erasure of those human beings, mostly people of color and poor people, perpetuates a cycle in which large groups of people are cut off from mainstream society and denied the freedoms, opportunities, civil dignity, and basic needs that allow them a good life. In many jails and prisons, incarcerated people are tossed into a dank, dungeon-like solitary confinement cell when they are determined to have misbehaved. It's dubbed the hole. Isolated and dark, it shuts out almost all communication with fellow prisoners in the outside. Guards control the terms of confinement and the channels, if any, by which words can travel in and out. The whole presents a stark symbol of the institution of prison in its entirety, which functions on the tenets of disappearance, isolationism, and disposability. The solution to our social problems, the mechanism that's supposed to keep things together, amounts to destruction. The disposal of vast numbers of human beings, the breaking down of families, and the shattering of communities. Prison is tearing society apart. This country's most marginalized communities bear the overwhelming brunt of that devastation, but ultimately we are all caught up in the destruction as the politics of isolation ruptures the human bonds that could otherwise hold together a safer, healthier, and more just society. The behemoth that encompasses the prison is called by many names. The most meaningful ones, I think, are those that convey the pervasiveness of its power, the way it infects the world outside as well as the people within. Scholar and activist Beth Ritchie uses the term prison nation, describing it as, quote, a broad notion of using the arm of the law to control people, especially people who are disadvantaged and come from disadvantaged communities, end quote. That control can take the form of prisons, jails, surveillance, policing, detention, probation, harsh restrictions on child guardianship, the militarization of schools, and other strategies of isolation and disposal particularly deployed against poor communities of color, especially black communities. Others have used prison nations simply to demonstrate the system's vastness, how it infiltrates our culture and fuels our national politics, often in invisible ways. Prison industrial complex, PIC, is another key term. Rachel Herzing of the prison abolitionist group Critical Resistance defines it, and then she goes on through this. It's an extraordinary book, Locked Down, Locked Out by Maya Shen. So, interesting study published uh, from researchers at the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, that's in Sydney, Australia. And uh, what they found is that having houseplants removes cancer-causing chemicals from your room. Seriously. According to the World Health Organization, poor air quality, poor indoor air quality is responsible for 6.7 million premature deaths. Most Americans spend around 90% of their time inside a building. 
So what they did, they, these researchers had teamed up with this company that makes green walls. And uh, green walls is basically just a rack with a whole bunch of plants on it, you know. And what they found was that this green wall was effective at removing 97% of the most toxic compounds from the surrounding air within eight hours, particularly the carcinogens associated with petroleum products. The known carcinogen benzene, for example, is digested at a faster rate by these plants than less harmful uh, substances like simple alcohols. Uh, quote from the study, we also found that the more concentrated the toxins in the air, the faster and most effective, more effective the plants became at removing the toxins, showing that plants adapt to the conditions they're growing in. I, you know, I, uh, a year or so, a couple of, I guess it was more like two or three years ago, it was at the beginning of the pandemic, um, I bought just a little, you know, four-inch pot with a single house plant in it, one of those ivy kind of plants that, I don't, I don't remember what they're called, I don't, I don't know. They've got the, the little ivy-like leaves, you know, and heart-shaped leaves. And now it has grown. It's taken over my office. It's all over the place. I, you know, I added another plant to it, kind of a, a I think it's a spider plant. I've got a, you know, and, and, and they, they grow. It's just amazing. I put, give them a little bit of food, and, and they're all over the place. And so I'm cleaning up the air in my office, and it seems like a good thing. All right, let's pick up your phone calls and see what's on your mind. What do you, how do you think this debt ceiling thing is going to play out? So far, Kevin McCarthy is still in, in control. It's an interesting time, right? Is it not? Marty in Wixom, Michigan. Hey, Marty, what's on your mind today? Hey, good timing. Yes, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, that debt ceiling debate and mm-hmm. how I think the messaging from the Democrats has really been poor. Uh, I should say I'm, I'm generally a big supporter of Joe Biden, but his messaging strategy, and this has been a disaster. He's almost, his almost total silence during this whole process has allowed McCarthy to completely dominate the coverage and repeatedly emphasize the core Republican talking point. Now, I, I watch and read a lot of media sources, and I'd argue that the simplistic coverage is basically boiled down to this. Republicans have repeatedly used the theme of restraining excess government spending, while the Democrats repeatedly cited concerns about opposing work requirements on welfare recipients. Right. Yeah. I can hardly imagine a worse portrayal of the two parties. No, I, I, I agree with you, Marty, and this is, this is why I wrote that piece on Friday about the two Santa Clauses, that this whole thing is a scam. The whole debt ceiling thing is nothing more than a scam. And and it's a scam that Newt Gingrich started in the in the 90s. And, you know, every time a Democrat's in the White House, they pull this out of their back pocket again. Yeah. And completely missing from the whole debate is any discussion of the role of the huge Republican tax cuts for billionaires and corporations. Right. Yeah. McCarthy just said that the revenues were off the table and the Bidens and the Democrats apparently just passively went along. Yeah. That should be the strongest talking point for the Democrats. And it's, it's been completely missed. Yeah, no, and, I, and finally, I, I agree. The actual, go ahead. When it, when it comes to the actual deal, it's being portrayed as a simple freeze in spending for a couple of years. doesn't sound too bad, but if inflation is 7% a year, a two-year freeze is equivalent to a 14% cut. Yeah, you're right. In actual By the way, you know, 40 from- years ago, when Reagan came into office, uh, discretionary spending was 11% of our GDP. Now it's 6.3%. We've seen a 40% cut in the last 50 years in discretionary spending. Yep. 
I mean, it was much, much larger. Uh, actually, it would have been uh, not Reagan when Reagan came into office. It would have been you know around the time that Jimmy Carter came into office. And, and this was because of the Great Society, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. And Newt Gingrich used the debt ceiling to force Bill Clinton to take an ax to a whole bunch of those programs. So much so yeah, that Bill Clinton declared the end of welfare as we know it. This intersects with your earlier comments about how the billionaires are dominating us. Yep. I mean, this is the other side of the coin from that. I thank yeah. you for covering that. But. Yeah, it is. We have an oligarch crisis in America. You know, America, we now have three men who own more wealth than the bottom half of Americans. Um, that is not a healthy thing for any society. And it's, and it's getting worse as time goes on because the oligarchs are only paying an average of 3.1% income tax, uh, whereas average working people are paying, you know, 20, 30, 40% uh, state and federal taxes. It's just nuts. Marty, thanks. Thanks for uh, the call. Well said. Maurice in Miami. Hey, Maurice, we have just a minute to the end of the show. You got a quick one? Yeah. When did the military become an entitlement program? That's a good question. <laughs> I, I think because, you could argue it always has been, but specifically? Yeah, because the debt ceiling, you know, they're trying to negotiate, oh, you can't touch Medicare, you right. can't touch Medicaid, and now it's, you can't touch the military. It, it, to give you a, an actual serious answer, it, it happened during the 1980s. During the Reagan administration, during the 1980s, the defense industry kind of got smart. And I don't know if they did it through a lobbying organization or how it happened, but during that decade, Every congressional district in America now has at least one major defense manufacturing facility. Every single one, all 435 of them. And so, you know, this was their insulation against political problems. Maurice, thanks for the call. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. We'll continue the conversations with you. We'll have a whole brand new batch of news stories to talk about. But in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Get out and take a walk. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.